0: Welcome to a special edition of Phone Messages. This episode combines all the messages and interviews with Sikay Tang. I keep the short introductions of the length and approximate date of the messages, but have removed my after-commentary. I hope you enjoy. This week we hear a message from Sikei Tang, the message comes from the spring of nineteen eighty nine and is about thirty seconds long. Let's listen
1: Hi Paul this is the Kay calling listen I've got tickets to see let me say, um, Maggie gave me the tickets so if you're interested it's tonight at around six I have to go and pick up the ticket then if you're interested, let me know soon because um. Otherwise, I have to find someone else. Okay, bye.
2: I think I got some tickets last minute from somebody, and I can't make out who it was.
0: It sounded like Marty.
2: Marty. Marty or Marley?
0: Is there somebody that you remember named... Marty? Marty or Morty?
2: Marley. Maggie, maybe? I have no idea. I don't remember who gave me those tickets, but I do remember vaguely that I got those tickets in the last minute and I had to go pick it up.
0: What were you thinking about just hearing your voice from 30 years ago?
2: I think I had more of a British accent maybe back then. I don't know what it is, so it just sounded as if I was acting a little bit.
0: As if you were acting? Yeah. You don't recognize your voice as being your authentic voice?
2: That's right, that's right. Maybe I had a cold, so it didn't sound like me, I feel like.
0: When did you first meet me?
2: I met you downtown at this place called South End Music Works. So a friend of mine, Sophia Thompson, she's also a sculptor. She was my friend in the undergrad art department. And she's really into music so she introduced me to this place and she said to me oh do you like music I volunteer at this place called Southland Music Works and then you get to hear music for free and I started volunteering at Southland Music Works and in one of the my volunteering days I saw you as you were driving some musicians away take the musician to a hotel or like
0: well I remember you were volunteering at one of the shows. Yeah. And Leo or Lawrence probably introduced me. When did you start University of Chicago? Fall of nineteen eighty-five. So then in the spring of eighty nine. That was my graduating year. Where do you think you were living at the time?
2: Probably above Harrels. It's like a takeout joint where you can buy fried chicken and French fries on a piece of white bread
0: What was it like living above Harold's
2: At the beginning it was fantastic because I think I was a vegetarian then but I I couldn't eat chicken but smelling the chicken somehow I feel like I was fulfilled
0: So you never actually bought any No I did there.
2: eventually it broke me down and I actually I think at the beginning I was just buying french fries And then little by little, I started buying the chicken, I think. I think I ate it like once or
0: twice. You were a vegetarian when you moved in to live above Harold's Chicken Jack. And then the smell of it slowly and slowly tempted you.
2: Yes. My friends, you know, whenever they would go by. Harold's and I would tell them, oh, come up, you know, and so a lot of people would actually buy Harold's and come upstairs to my apartment to eat. And I love, like, the french fries because I really love the grease, you know. It's almost like the early iterations of the YouTube watching people eat videos. It's like, I can't eat it, but I would like to see other people eat it, you know.
0: (laughs) This week, I play the second message from Sake Tang. And based on what she says, it was clearly recorded on the same day in the spring of 1989 as her previous message from episode 67. The message is 30 seconds long. Here we go.
1: Hi Paul, this is Sikari again. Uh, The tickets are for today, so call me back. I'm gonna be at the studio later on, okay? So try the studio which is six six seven nine one two six or me at home two eight eight oh because otherwise I have to find somebody else, like I said. All right, bye.
2: I guess that was the last year of my studio program. I was an art major so I was going to the studio quite a lot. That was probably in the morning or early afternoon. I was planning my day.
0: What was your studio like?
2: So, at the University of Chicago, there's an art department. And it is located across the Midway in an old studio of a Chicago sculptor. His name is Loreto Taff. So, there were about five to six art major undergrads and the rest of the people which was about maybe six or eight were the graduate students and so as an undergrad you get to have your own studio i think the last year or the last two years of your studies so the last year i got a really nice studio above loeto taft sculpture studio there was a set of stairs then you go up the stairs and it opens up into two French doors, and there were two rooms, a bathroom, and that was my studio.
0: So when you gave me the phone number to reach you at your studio, did you have your own phone line?
2: No, it was a pay phone.
0: How did that work?
2: There was one pay phone just outside of the photo lab, I think, and when that phone rings, Whoever is nearest the phone will pick it up, and then we'll fetch the person.
0: So what would your studio have looked like? Like, what kinds of things were you working on?
2: I made a sculpture. They're sort of of my parents and my, my own experiences, I made a sculpture about my dad's departure from Hong Kong and, you know, it was a sculpture based on a moment when my dad came to me to say goodbye to me. It was almost like a defining moment in my life and there was like a person in bed and that was supposed to be me. And then my dad was like this figure that was split at the doorway. Part of him wants to stay and part of him wants to go.
0: Did you have a job in mm-hmm. Chicago?
2: The last year, I think I was working at the Art Institute in the photo services department. Um, I was filing negatives.
0: Filing negatives? What do you...?
2: Well, at the Art Institute, they have a photo services department They're in charge of photographing artwork and creating an archive. So when other people, other publications, is looking for reproduction of a certain piece of work, they go through the photo services department.
0: What was your favorite part of the museum?
2: I remember there was an exit from the offices. I'm not sure if there was an elevator. You emerge from the back, and then as you were, like, entering the museum hall itself you kind of then blend yourself with other visitors you know but it feels like you're coming from the inside out and so you really see that it is a, a bit of a production you know it's a show.
0: So how did you get that job and did they show you artworks and quiz you?
2: No I wasn't an art history major and they didn't ask me anything like that and I was interested in photography, so...
0: Did they ask you questions about photography?
2: No, no. It was a filing job. So, <laughs> really, anyone can do it.
0: This week, I play the third message from Sikei Tang. The message was recorded on the same day in the spring of 1989 as her previous two messages. Here we go.
1: I wish so much that you would be home. Cause I have these tickets to see Sile Miserra. Margie gave them to me. And, um, well, anyway, I guess that's it. This is my last call. I hope, I wish so much you would step into the house and pick up the phone right now, but I guess it's not gonna happen. All right. Maybe next time. Okay, bye.
2: I wanted to go to see some shows, some musical, but it was too expensive. And, like, for me, this was, like, an amazing opportunity. So I thought it would be great if I could go with you.
0: So the big question is, did you go?
2: I think I did not go at the end. I think I was also a little bit afraid to go or something by myself.
0: Maybe you were hoping because I had a car. (laughs) It could be. Totally, totally. I mean,
2: it was very difficult for me to kind of navigate in Chicago because I have to call ahead. I find out what's the address. And then, you know, I have to map it out before I go. But And that was before Google Maps, you know, so... It is very difficult to move around.
0: As I recall, the buses don't run as frequently in the evening, so I'm not sure where the theater was, but it would have been difficult probably to get home from the theater at least.
2: Yes, unless you're ready to like pay lots of money for a taxi. My social life was so dependent on people who have cars. Did you ever see
0: the musical anywhere?
2: I finally saw it, I think last year, either on Netflix or YouTube, or, and I hated it. It's one of the cheesiest musicals.
0: Were you a fan of musicals back no, in those days?
2: I wasn't. In fact, I've never seen a Broadway show and I had no idea what to expect and I thought, okay, sure, why not? It's like...
0: So you've never been to a Broadway musical?
2: Yeah, no, I've seen some theater pieces, but I've never seen like these huge Broadway musicals.
0: Did you ever see any theater while you were in Chicago? No. So this would have been your only opportunity to go to a show your entire time in Chicago, yeah. I'm almost positive that I was in Minnesota at the time, I was definitely out of town. And I remember getting back and being like, Oh my gosh, I missed that opportunity to go to the Cile Miserable. I was so bummed out.
2: Really, you yeah. were bummed out,
0: yeah. Um, so in spring of Eighty-nine. Who came to your graduation to watch you?
2: It was very awkward because my parents had to work. They had a restaurant in New York. And so it was decided that my mother would go, not my father. So my older sister came with my mother. I've always knew that, you know, my reality at home and, and my university life were very different. But having my mom there, made it very real. My mom felt, she didn't feel very comfortable there. Everything was strange to her, like the studio, you know, all these white people. (laughs) She definitely feel uncomfortable at my show because I had a lot of pictures of her on the wall. And so she saw her own pictures and she just like wanted to hide in a corner.
0: So do you think that she might have been more comfortable if you had been a business major, for example?
2: Yeah, if I were a business major, friends with other Chinese people, and maybe have more of a New York connection, I don't know. She seemed to be intimidated by these institutions because she felt that she didn't go to them. I mean, she's probably no more distant or close to this institution than any of my friend's parents.
0: Do you think your father would have been more comfortable? Because he went to college, right?
2: Yeah, I guess he went to college, some sort of equivalent in China. He would have been a little bit more comfortable, only because it doesn't bother him as much. Like he would have like found his way and find something fun for himself, or making fun of other people, whatever. Like he wouldn't have care as much.
0: This week, I play the fourth message from Sikei Tang. And it is clearly a response to my outgoing message, played in the previous episode, where I say, someone told me that my message was much too annoying. Sikhae's message is about 12 seconds long and comes from the spring of 1989. Here we go.
1: Someone is right. Your message is much too annoying. Anyway, uh, I'm calling
2: this hello. I think I probably would have said the same thing today if you use that outgoing message. Your voice sounds familiar.
0: More familiar than the last one. I don't know why. So after you graduated.
2: I think I was, I moved back to Queens with my parents. And then I worked to open a restaurant with my dad. His second restaurant on the 4th Street and 6th Avenue. You know, he wanted to do it right. So he had an architect designing the place and I had some input. But first, before we did that, we had to clear out the space. I remember going into the space. It it was a location of an old Chinese restaurant, so they had, like, some ornaments on the ceiling and a lot of equipment. So my dad didn't know what to do with the old kitchen equipment. So, uh, you know, I have seen on the Bowery that people, they buy and sell old kitchen equipment. So I just went to Anabari and asked somebody in there if they're interested in buying some Chinese kitchen equipment. And some guy came, I think he offered me like $800. So when I handed my dad the money, he was so impressed. Like he thought that he had to pay somebody to get rid of the equipment and then I actually got someone in there to pay us. I went around with my dad a lot, buying equipments, buying lamps, you know, decorative stuff or practical stuff. Like there was this refrigerator store on Prince Street. I remember there was a guy in there. He was also the son of the owner. So my dad actually ordered a refrigerator from them and uh, this custom-made refrigerator came to the restaurant and they had to send it back because they couldn't get it inside the door. That guy, he was so pissed off that he actually took it back. He saw it as another one. I feel like because I was translating for my dad, there was a lot of like leeway and for a while like we were a good team you know whenever we go in to negotiate with somebody because he didn't speak any English and I would work as his translator so that sort of gave us a little bit of a buffer like I was like the good cop and he was like the bad cop you know I would go and talk to the vendors and ask them for the price of this merchandise that my dad wanted to buy and then I would go translate with my dad, but then at the same time I would actually ask him, do you want me to go back and like give a lower number, you know. In between the, the languages, I think we had a lot of space to strategize, you know. And when I was managing the restaurant, I see myself playing a role. I guess it was like a performance, you know. It became like uh, a 24-7 art project for me. So whenever I go out to eat I couldn't stop thinking about the restaurant you know so like I would go to a restaurant and I would check out what kind of lighting that they're using how do they like work out their flow like where do they have their waiter section like I was kind of like a sponge you know But I do remember very early on, this friends of mine from Hong Kong, they came and they really were very impressed with the restaurants. They were like, oh, this is like the first Chinese restaurant that isn't like so Chinese looking. My father's restaurant's name is Vegetarian Paradise. And I remember talking to a friend who was a designer. Oh, he just said, well, why don't you just call it VP2? I said, oh, okay. And I guess it was kind of, hip-looking for a Chinese restaurant, you know. There weren't, at that time in 1989, there weren't a lot of hipster Chinese restaurants, and of course there weren't a lot of vegetarian Chinese hipster restaurants, you know.
0: This week I play message number five from Sikei Tang. The message comes from the summer of 1989 and is 30 seconds long. Let's listen.
2: Hi, Paul. This is K calling. When
1: you get home, could you please give me a call? I want to uh, move all the stuff from my studio back home, I mean, back to my apartment. If you can help me do that, it would be really, really great. Um, I'm going to be taking pictures at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock or so at the Reynolds Club, and I'm basically home, you know, doing errands here and there, but basically I'm home, um, So, talk to you later. Bye.
3: I hear a bit of a panic in my voice. That had been um, a big concern of mine to try to figure out how am I going to move these sculptures back to New York. But as I remembered it, I put the sculptures into uh, Herbert's office and... After I graduated in the summer, my friend Mark Hanna helped me move the sculptures back to New York. I, mar- I met Mark Hanna through some Kung Fu kids. Um, a group of kids around my age uh, who, who were going to my dad's restaurant when we were working there. And they were learning Kung Fu from this guy. Uh, his name is Alon and they all call him Bifu, which is a Chinese name of the master teacher. He spoke some Cantonese, and most of the time when he comes in, he would order in Cantonese. So we always thought of him as like half a Chinese, but he's German, actually, German-American kid. And um, the people who learn from him are mostly guys, but occasionally there are a few women. And Robin, my friend, is one of the women. Robin Manaski, and she is a friend of Mark Hanna. So he had experience handling art, and he offered to help me move my stuff.
0: So the Kung Fu kids, is that what you said?
3: Yeah. The Kung Fu kids were kind of a bunch of really brilliant kids who were not, for one reason or another, happy with their own education or their own environment, so they joined this teacher day in and day out, and they would just learn Kung Fu, and afterwards they would come to my dad's restaurant to eat, and they were really respectful to my dad and to us. After every meal, they would go into the kitchen and give thanks. Yeah, they were so into learning the language, they were into following the culture, you know. In fact, like, There's a really funny story of this kid, Jamie. He's a year older than me. And he's part of that group. And one time he asked me, what's my name? And this was before I started school. I just came from Hong Kong. And so I was using my English name. And so I said, my name is Allison. And then he goes, no, 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 what is your Chinese name? What is your real name? The word real is what kind of trips me up because Allison was also my real name. It was given by my mother, too. So, so this is the weird thing in Hong Kong, is that if you're speaking in English, then you, use your, you present your English name, you know, and then if you're speaking in Chinese, you present your Chinese name. We use both names as a strategy to navigate the English bureaucracy, you know. So... My mom gave me the name Allison when I went into first grade because she wanted all of us to have names with the letter A so that we won't be too far down the line, like when things are done in the alphabetical order, because our last name is Tang T. So I've been using Allison ever since I was six years old in Hong Kong. And that's the name that my friends call me. That's the name that I used in school, except in Chinese subjects. But I didn't put Allison in my official papers because I never really liked the name. I wanted to be called Barbara because I had a after-school babysitter. Her name was Barbara, and I really liked her, so... But my mom didn't like that name, so we couldn't settle on one. So I never put it in my passport. All my siblings put their English name in their passport. So when I came over here, I assumed the name Allison. And uh, I find the question of like, "What is your Chinese name?" real a bit odd because we were conversing in English. It was a bit like personal, you know, like, "What do you mean? What do you need? Why do you need my Chinese name for?" But in any case, after he pushed, so then I say, my name is SickKate. It was because of this conversation, I went home and I thought a lot about whether or not I should use Allison. And when I started school in the fall, I was in my class and there was another girl with the name Allison. She has red hair. And so... I thought maybe she looked more like an Allison than me. And so when the teacher called out the name Allison, I don't even replied anymore. And I had another incident where I had an English teacher at Stuyvesant. He was a substitute English teacher, but he was very respectful also of my culture. He kind of holds the position that English is just one language out of all the languages so he insisted upon calling me by my Chinese name in the Chinese pronunciation so it was extremely embarrassing actually like he would call me or something like that you know I don't even know if he was learning Chinese he was just wanting to make a statement that I want to respect you and where you come from so within the first year of, of my high school year, I changed my name to Sikkay. Um The British translation of my name was S-I-K-K-I. Phonetically, it is pronounced as Sikki. So I came up with a spelling of S-I-K-A-Y, also because I liked the word K. When I was a kid, there was a series, a Longman series of detective stories, and the detective in there it's a woman named Kay, and she was like a really stylish detective so i thought okay if i'm gonna like use my chinese name i want to have a name that everyone can say that reminds me more of my real name and it's okay that i come up with a new spelling
0: this week i play message number six from Sake tang and we are very fortunate that she provides the precise date of her call, September 16, 1989. The message is 35 seconds long. Here we go.
1: Today is the 16th day of September of the year 1989, a day or two after the mid-autumn moon festival. It's Saturday. 9 o'clock and 35 minutes Eastern Time. I'm sitting on Terry's chair in apartment 15 of 179 Prince Street of New York City. I'm calling Paul Furch. My name is C.K. Tang. Call me back. Bye!
3: I was subbedding this guy Terry Chan's apartment on Prince Street. Terry is a friend of Johnny, who, who came to my parents' restaurant, he's an artist. So after I graduated, I think I said to Johnny that I wanted to get a fine sublet, and maybe he told me about Terry. And Terry, he is an artist who is part of this group called ATW, and it stands for Around the World. There was a group of artists in New York City who would make magazines as art. And uh, I joined them. And Terry was, I think, spending some time in Berlin or something. So a subletted to his apartment in Prince Street. I think it was like, between Sullivan and Thompson. So it's like right in the middle of Soho. It's an excellent location. So yeah, it was a tiny, tiny apartment. The interior of it is decorated in a very Chinese way. It's one of those tenement apartments, very small. I think the bathtub, it's in the
0: living room. Do you remember how much the rent was? It was like either 200 or $300. It'd be like 2000 or 3000 today. Yeah. And what was the name of this magazine again?
3: ATW, and it stands for Around the World. It was started... ...by this guy called Jörg Geismer. He was living in Germany, in Dusseldorf. It was a collective of artists who, um, like, instead of doing shows, they would do a monthly magazine. So everyone has a page, and you will contribute your work within that page. And the way that you submit your page is by fax. So it's all fax art, a drawing... Or some sort of textural thing, whatever you want to submit, you know. There was one time, one submission that I did around the, the rise of the German economy. And so I faxed in these words, bigger man, and big German, you know. It also reads a big German. I think I typecasted, I just printed it out, but it was, uh, in three pages or something. Bigger man, you know.
0: Did you have your own fax machine?
3: Yeah, it was the 90s. So, No, it was the end of the 80s. So we were using that as a way to transmit our art. I think George Gessner wanted to make use of the technology at the time. And he's really like, he doesn't really care about quality so much you know he, he is all about the process just the doing of it you know so he didn't care if it's reproduction he didn't care if the facts you know pages came with flow the specs it was really strange I thought it would there would be more discussion and all that but basically I just faxed it in <laughs> and they print it you know it was very fluid, you know. I remember back in the days, like, this is the cell phone, right? And I feel like it was easier to socialize because people, the only way for people to talk to one another is to meet up. So we would just make a plan. Like, okay, 8 o'clock, Max Fish or whatever. Max Fish was this bar in the Lower East Side. Like, you go there and then you meet, like, everybody else that was there for that purpose. Like, those places, social places, are the only way that you could meet, you know. There isn't, like, in the Internet, there isn't any social media site where you see everybody else in there, you know.
0: This week, I play message number seven from Sakei Tang. The message is 30 seconds long and most likely comes soon after Sakei's message from last week's episode in September of 1989. Here we go.
1: At present, I feel disgusted. I feel full. I feel harsh on. I'm quite sure that I saw Johnny walking to the movies, holding hands with a woman. Without saying hello, he passed me. It was all right. I don't like him. But I'm burned because I feel uncool. I'm paranoid that I'm not cool enough for him, not even to be his friend. Oh, well. Yeah, I don't know who
3: is this Johnny that I'm referring to. I I don't think it's Johnny Fu that I was talking
0: to. Why wouldn't it be him?
3: Well, Johnny is gay, so he he wouldn't be walking, holding hands with a woman. uh, That wouldn't be Johnny.
0: So do you think it was just kind of a fictional character that you made up?
3: Maybe. (laughs) Because I really saw these phone messages as like little stages of performance. These are the days before YouTube videos. You know, you have like two or three seconds to perform. And sometimes I did see messages for people as like performance spaces.
0: It sounds very much like a short story almost. Right that you've written.
3: No, I don't I'm pretty sure that I didn't write it. If I were making it up, I think I would I was just, you know, it was spontaneous.
0: You were just improvising. I guess. Where do you think those ideas came from though?
3: Well, here's the thing, like maybe maybe the emotions is real but maybe I change the name of the person, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe it happened, but not exactly in the same way. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it it could have been an incident or a moment that it happened. Maybe I had a crush on somebody, and then I saw him on the street holding hands with somebody else, and then I was
0: kind of burned. And then, like, but it's not really about having a crush on somebody. You're saying I don't like him. <laughs>
1: Yeah,
3: I said I right, I don't like him. I'm like I was I over him or something.
0: You say that you feel you're not cool enough for him. Right. There was a lot of little groups. Everybody wants to be part of the cooler crowd.
3: Well, yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, it's a myth. This idea of belonging, because there's always some group that you don't belong to. And there's always some group that you want to belong to. I was looking for some group to participate something with.
0: You had recently completed your degree. Did you have an what? idea about what kind of career you might have as an artist?
3: No. I mean, I was working for my dad. I had to come back and help him with his restaurant. You know, I mean, he wanted me to take it over, but I didn't want to because having a restaurant is the twenty four seven operation. Yeah, I mean coming back to New York was a little bit traumatic because I was making sculptures and photos in Chicago and um I just didn't have the space to make sculpture in New York City. It was like as if I had to rethink this art thing. I was working for my dad and there was one time and I don't remember when that was I wanted to print photographs, and I didn't have any money, so I went to him for money. And it was really—he didn't want to give it to me because his feeling was like, "Why are you coming to me for money?" But he didn't understand that I actually need to have all the time. I—I I have no idea, like, what I, how to get to what I wanted to. Like, I wanted to continue to make art and show art, but I didn't see, in a way, like, I kind of didn't see a path forward. Um, because I had to make a living, and I had to, yeah, it was very difficult.
0: This week, I play message number eight from Sake Tang, and it is the third message in a four-part sequence, most likely recorded on a single day in September of 1989. The message is 37 seconds long. Let's listen.
1: I just got home from an, an Igma Berkman film, Persona, after buying a pair of black sweat clocks for my mom, after talking to Mr. Pika in Italy, after bumming into Susanna, after looking for the other vegetarian restaurant on 7th Avenue and missing it, after B. Dalton so that Dad can speak to our child alone, after trying to call Mr. Pika with Terry, after waiting for Dad, after receiving brownies from Paul, after
2: coffee with Tina, after I woke up with Tina. I remember leaving this message, although I don't remember all these events, but I remember that I had an idea of leaving a message, sort of as a diary, but looking backwards. I think I was just dying for an outlet and I think I was just experimenting forms different narrative forms.
0: Can you talk about any of the events?
2: Well, I didn't catch all of it, but I think I went to see Persona, probably either at the anthology or at Film Forum. I remember wanting to go see it because it was so talked about, but I also remember not being able to digest all of it. I mean, to this day, I only have like a few images from that film. And then receiving brownies from Paul, did you send me brownies? I guess so. And then Tina is somebody who went to the UFC. I think at one point I actually hired her to be the cashier person and hostess at my dad's restaurant. I was like so adamant about not just hiring Chinese people. And I actually have hired another, like a Swedish guy who also worked there. And I think I, what I did is like I created a system so that they would know how to write some simple Chinese words because we didn't have a electronic ordering system. But nowadays, when you go to a restaurant, when you place an order, people would just type in something in the computer screen and then the order will be sent to the kitchen. But back in those days, I think we looked into it, my dad and I looked into it, and it would cost like $10,000, you know, that system. So we kind of were sticking to the old ways, which is that you write on a piece of small note paper the order and you kind of give it to the kitchen. It's. I think I, what I did is I made a chart of like, what they have to write and they just kind of imitate those
0: writings. And then there's the other women you mentioned.
2: Susanna. I think that Susanna is a customer. I would bump into the restaurant's customers all the time in New York City, you know. And uh, I probably was looking for the other vegetarian restaurant because I was probably sent by my father to look at the other vegetarian restaurant.
0: You remember the pair of clogs
2: yeah, it was a clock pair of shoes that my mom bought me. I had them when I was staying in Terry's apartment.
0: Who's Terry?
2: Terry is the guy that I subletted the, uh, the the apartment from. And uh, I remember that pair of clocks. It was a very comfortable pair of shoes. My mom is very, you know, whenever I go out with her, she likes to buy herself some stuff. And then she would like to buy me some stuff too. I don't know if it's like she wants to feel less guilty about buying stuff for herself.
0: So who's Mr. Peek?
2: Well, my dad's landlord was this Italian guy on West 4th Street. It might be because I had to speak to him for my dad.
0: But why would you have Terry help you?
2: Maybe it's Terry's landlord. I think his landlord was also Italian. The apartment on 179 Prince
0: Street. What else did you talk about?
2: And then there were some things like that had to do with Dad and B. Dalton. You know, maybe my dad had set up a meeting with somebody, and we were meeting at B. Dalton, the bookstore. My dad didn't speak any English. So anything that he couldn't get in Chinatown, I basically have to serve as his translator.
0: What kind of business things would he need that he couldn't get through Chinatown?
2: Like a lot of stuff in the restaurant, like the detergent, Echolab.
0: So what do you mean, Echolab detergent?
2: It, when, if you have a, a restaurant, different vendors will come to you. Every day you will have to meet a new vendor, basically. They will come to you and sell you their service. And one of the people that comes through the door was, was the people called Echolab. They sell dish detergents. And actually, they even have hand soap. So in order to comply to the health department rule, your dishwashing machine's temperature has to be of a certain degree, and you have to use a certain kind of detergent. And Ecolab was one of those companies that provide you with good sanitizing detergent for your dishes. So they would come through the door and they would sell you your their business. And every day I would have to meet with a vendor. And then I have try to understand what they're selling me and decipher whether or not is it a good deal, is it a is it good quality? And then I have to translate all that to my dad and make my recommendation, basically. And then there are all these other services advertising, a lot of different kinds of advertisers, advertising people would come. Back in those days, in the 90s, there were a lot of free papers in New York City, so like New York Press, Village Voice, and then there is also those uh, health food magazines. And my dad believes in advertising, so every month we would do $300 or $500. I don't remember what the amount was. So we would pick a few papers to advertise, but put in really small ads, but just to have a presence. There's one thing about advertising, is that he was consistently advertising in some magazines because he wants to have a review in them. So like he would advertise in the New York Times even though it was a really tiny ad because he wanted to have a write-up in the New York Times. I don't think it ever happened.
0: This week I play message number nine from Sakai Tang and it is the final message in a four-part series all likely recorded on September 16, 1989. The message is two minutes and 52 seconds long. Let's listen.
1: My mom brought me a pair of new clothes today. She wants to make me feel loved. I feel loved, cared by someone. It feels none of my existing emptiness, but my feet are happy. It lifted me up when I walk. I wonder if they would change my life from now on. I'm not superstitious anymore. I don't believe that material things can change my metaphysical future. In fact, I don't believe in any faith anymore, hardly even myself. I wish i do. Many of the existing faith seems to derive from some sort of scandal or propaganda to be virtuous by someone's standard. This someone is usually an empowered ruler or controller, maybe just an inspired leader with a God complex. To be religious, in any faith, is to deny mortality or humanness. It is an attempt to be closer to God and to be like God, an attempt to rise above normal human capacity, to be more in control. My equivalence of religion is a vegetarian diet, learning languages, or keep learning in general, not hurting other people. I believe that the forces of nature are watching us, the Earth, the universe. They and the spirits of all the passed away people have their ways of regulating space, time, and how things should turn out. We live with everything. Everything that is, was, and will be. Anything that had ever existed, transformed, or evaporated. Matter disintegrates, but it never disappears. Particles of our past, of all the past years, decades, millennium, surround us all the time. We live with our past, our sins, our guilt, our laughs, our love, our lust, our tears, our fears. They're all with us, but they may not affect us. They exist having full right to their own existence, in their own space. We do the same. We all have our own territory and space on Earth. We all go about our own things, pursuing our own goals. In the cities, people tend to make believe that they have more rights to exist than others. But that's the biggest myth and lie ever invented. It's just untrue. Nature can contest to that
2: every day. Wow. I think I have that written down. (laughs) I don't think I was speaking from the top of my head. I guess I was working out some ideas.
0: You're not a vegetarian anymore.
2: No, but back then I was. Working at my dad's restaurant, I was a total devoted vegetarian. Because I meet all these vegetarians every day working there. I remember that when I was about 13, I started working and... After lunch, I like to go for a walk. And, you know, there's nothing to do in Chinatown, so I just go into a store. I buy some M&Ms or something. And I would bring them back, and some of the customers would look at it. I remember this lady, she looked at it, she said, What is that? And I said, It's just sugar. And she's like, Sugar? Do you know how bad that is for your body, blah, blah, blah? And she scared me. I thought it was like a harmless snack. But after she told me the evilness of sugar, and I had to cut that out too. So at the age of 16, I was like eating soba noodles in miso soup, macrobiotic basically.
0: When did languages become important for you?
2: Oh, I wanted to speak five languages before I turned 25. When I came here, I realized how important learning a different language is. When I was in Hong Kong, like I barely spoke English. But by the time I came here, I had to learn English. And in the process of learning it, I felt that I learned a lot more. And then when I started school in here, I started to learn Spanish. It was as if it was magic. Like you learn the language and then you all of a sudden can communicate with this whole group of people that you didn't used to be able to communicate with. So I really wanted to learn as many languages as possible so that I could constantly have this paradigm change. Like, there's another whole different aspects of life that you didn't consider, but because you learned this language, you know, you're able to consider
0: that. What else was on that list?
2: I think I mentioned one thing, was that something physical can change your metaphysical. I mean, this actually, I think it stems from a conversation that I had with this young lady who was working in the restaurant as a waitress. I was trying to describe, like, a real... Simple contentment. And I think maybe it was some food or some snack that I had or some small things that I bought. And sometimes life is that simple. You can have like just something that doesn't cost a lot, that doesn't mean anything. And it could actually deliver you to happiness, no matter how short-lived that is. And she does agree with me. She's like, you are overly emphasizing material. I was reading a lot of Eastern religion. I was interested in transcendental meditation. I believed in being able to transcend your everyday understanding. I grew up with a version of Buddhism in Hong Kong and that version of Buddhism is it's very transactional you go and you pay some money and then you get the blessing you go eat vegetarian food the first day of the month and then you have done your dues so I never really have such a good opinion about religion
0: the other thing you say is that people in the city think
2: that they have more rights. I think maybe I was feeling the culture shock maybe of moving back to New York from Chicago. Could be because there's less space. so many people are fighting over like small space. I mean, I remember being in the restaurant and the restaurant had to have an exhaust system, but the space of the restaurant was situated underneath a residential building. And the residents upstairs were complaining about the exhaust noise. And I only learned it after I made friends with the residents of the, the building and they told me about it. And then after I learned about it, I was like, I was feeling so bad. I was like, I had no idea that that in order to run a successful kitchen the restaurant would actually be taking something away from the residents. When you have so many sectors of society come together in a small space, everybody is fighting for what they want. You know, the residents want a peace of mind, wants nothing happening in the building. And then you as a restaurant owner wanted to have a good exhaust system so your customer can have better air. And your landlord wanted to have a restaurant in there so that they, they could charge good rent. Somehow everybody has to negotiate.
0: Biking home after our interview, I thought of one more question I really wanted to ask. So when I got home, I called Sake up. How much of what you said in that message do you still believe?
3: I'm trying to think if that is actually a belief or it's just a fleeting sentiment. I mean, right now, I probably won't bother to write those things down and then reciting it. Because I think nowadays, there's so many people expressing their thoughts on Twitter or on YouTube. I don't think I would find it necessary to do
0: it. This week, I play message number 10 from Sikei Tang. And it is likely from April 1st, 1990. The same day as last week's message. As in the case of that message from James Warden, Sike is responding to a practical joke where I told callers that my house had been broken into and my cats were missing. The sincere concern found in Siquei's voice reminds me of why I dislike this old prankster part of my personality. The message is 1 minute and 35 seconds long. Here we go.
1: Hi, Paul. This is Sakai calling from New York. I don't know where the cats are. I'm sorry. If I see one on the street, I'll ask the cat if it it used to live with you. But listen, cheer up. It's not the end of the world. You can find another cat, I'm sure. And who, who, who wants to live with cats anyway? Maybe you do. But listen, who is it to say? Maybe the cat found a nicer home, right? Maybe some really nice woman or man, you know, took it inside and fed them really nicely. So everything that happened has has a reason to happen, okay? So um, I hope everything, I mean, was it real? Did you really lose everything? Oh my god. Life is going out of control. My life is going out of control too. But who cares? Maybe we shouldn't just try to control it so much. Anyway, I know you don't. But Paul, cheer out. The worst things that could happen. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you get a girlfriend. Ah That'd be really bad, no. <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay. Listen. You take care of yourself, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye. I'm just trying to figure out what was
3: your outgoing message.
0: The other thing is, at some point you say, is this real? So you kind of think I might be joking.
3: Right. But then I didn't want to interrupt your misery in case it is real so I quickly empathize
0: do you remember me as a practical joker
3: no maybe I just didn't know you very well
0: the other thing is you say your life is going out of control
3: I was working for my dad then I think I was feeling very trapped
0: I remember you started as an intern for Spike Lee do you remember uh, how that came about
3: yeah, it was sort of during this period of time that I was working at my dad's restaurant managing it and the restaurant was on 4th Street so I would go around to uh, the magazine stores. So I went in there one day and I saw this guy wearing a More Better Blues shirt and I'd been like thinking about Spike Lee and Do the Right Thing, and I thought it was such a paradigm shift. So... When I saw him with the more better rusha, I just went up to him and I said, hey, did you work on that? And he was with a young lady and the young lady said, no, but I did. And I said, oh, my God, I really wanted to work with him. And she goes, "Okay, I can give you the number. I could give you the information. So I called that number and somebody told me to go to the orientation. I went to the orientation in Brooklyn. So I became an intern.
0: Do you remember your first day?
3: Yeah, I worked first in the location department. It was quite difficult for me. I would close the restaurant at around midnight, and then the call time, it's at 6 a.m., and it's usually uptown. And um, I think my first task was to sweep the sidewalk, and I think they were impressed with, like, how serious I was at my job, you know? Coming from a restaurant, it's like doing cleaning work is so easy. And then very quickly, I was asked to be in the props department. And that was more organizing and more cleaning. I made a lot of mistakes, like picking up things that I shouldn't pick up. I think there was one time I saw a table like, lying around and I was going to fix it. And somebody was like, no, 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 don't, don't. That's a different department. That's different from working in a restaurant, right? Because in the restaurant, don't waste a trip walking back and forth.
0: Was that the last job you you worked in the prop department?
3: No. So when I was working on the props department, the still photographer, Spike Lee's brother, David Lee, was sharing the same truck. And um, he was very nice. He found out that I study photography, and so somehow I then I became his intern. And Kevin was okay with it. Kevin is the property master. Kevin Latson. Kevin was so nice to me. He actually put me in the film in the Jungle Fever. There was a scene in Little Italy. The couple was walking through San Gennaro's fair, and Kevin put me in the in the shot where I was making cotton candy. Yeah, if you freeze it, the walk that you're seeing me, I was wearing a green jacket.
0: What did you do in the, is it called the stills?
3: Yeah, the stills department. Every day I would clean his lenses and his camera and load his camera. And then he would go into that to shoot. Usually I, I'm not allowed, And then when he comes back, he will give me the film and I would drop it off. And uh, there was one time that David couldn't make it. And so uh, I was like right there in front of Spike and I said, I can do it. And he said, okay. Spike was so generous, you know.
0: How long was the shoot?
3: The shoot was, I want to say two months. Maybe it's only one month. The difficult thing was to juggle the restaurant and the internship. I mean, a couple of times I've I've gone back and my dad was furious at me, you know. He could have fired me, but the problem is that he relied on me so much, it was difficult for him to find anyone that he could trust. I should have helped him to figure that out.